0: Holy Spirit of God, come now and fall upon your people, all of us together in this place. Lord, I pray for sweet anointing upon the scripture as it is taught today. I pray, Lord, for hearts open and receptive to good news. I pray, Lord, for the conviction of the Spirit in areas of our lives where we need to be challenged. And I pray for the grace of the Spirit of God to be poured out to enable us to be transformed in those areas where we need to be challenged. Lord, uh, as we sang at the very beginning of this service, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. Here is our hearts. Take and seal them. Seal them for your courts above. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have some some transparency things I need to deal with to begin with. Uh, You need to know, first of all, that um, I'm going on vacation after, this serv- after the second service today, and so I've got vacation brain. It's been really bad. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't cement my comb over this morning, so it's just gone everywhere. Um, <laughs> I noticed that uh, when we reset, we've got, had some plaster work done here, and we're obviously, yes, it's not painted yet. But we're re- thanks for helping uh, those tra- cracks get fixed. But then when we put the the, uh, the the furniture back, we didn't get it all exactly right. So if it's really bothering you that the cross is on the wrong side of the torch over there, um, you're gonna have to be like me, and you're, we're just gonna have to deal with it till after the service. Another thing about transparency and confession I need to make is that this is not my favorite parable, this parable from Luke chapter 10 that Jesus tells, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, first of all, I mean, obviously, you know, the clergy are the bad guys in this, right? And we just don't come off looking very good. I've been, I've been driving by people on the side of the road ever since. It's, it's just not my favorite. But beyond the fact that uh, it, it paints clergy in a, in, a, in a bad light, which people thoroughly enjoy, I must say. Uh, I know I always did when I was growing up. But the thing about it that is also a little concerning to me is that um, we think we know what this parable is about. And in that sense, it's hard to overcome our preconceptions about what the parable of the Samaritan. By the way, the word good never appears in the Good Samaritan. He's not called the Good Samaritan. That's something that we call this parable. We think we know what it means. And in fact, we too easily resort to what I would call moralism as we read it. And I don't know if that's a term that you're familiar with, but moralism is basically this. When we moralize a passage, it means that we take the gospel out of it, that we strip it of all its power to transform, and we turn a passage into a law, a kind of rule, a list of rules of do's and don'ts. So the usual way we read this parable is that we ought to be more like the good Samaritan and help those people in need around us. And that's fine. That's good. We should help people in need around us. But that's not what's at the core of this passage. There is so much more going on here. So let's just look at this text. If you're following along, it's in Luke chapter 10, begins at verse 25. And here is the setting. Jesus is questioned by a lawyer. And by that, it means, uh, Eddie, it's not talking about you. Um, it's It's talking about an expert in the Jewish law. It's talking about someone who had made a life study of the Torah. And so this lawyer gets up to test Jesus. And we don't necessarily have to think that this was an overtly hostile test. Uh, he is, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he is probably determining if Jesus is a true or a false teacher at this point. And the test is the most essential question that the lawyer can think of. If you're going to test somebody on, on right doctrine, you might need to go to the core of that teaching. And so he asks Jesus, how do I in- inherit eternal life? What does it mean to come into God's kingdom? How am I to be saved? And as a good Jewish rabbi, Jesus answers his question with a question. That's right. Thank you. He flips the question. He says, well, you're an expert in the law. How do you read it? What's your interpretation? And the lawyer gives this answer, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. Do this and you will live. Now, when Jesus says you have answered correctly, the word in the Greek there that Jesus uses for correctly is orthos. Orthos. It's the same root as we have for the word orthodoxy. Or Orthodox. Jesus is telling this lawyer that he has his doctrine exactly right. But that's not where it stops. The lawyer then asks another question. It says here in Luke 10, verse 29, <clears throat> but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In other words, if I have to love God and my neighbor, I need to define the terms. Who is my neighbor? He sought to justify himself. In other words, the lawyer seems to be trying to limit the claim of God's word over his life. I need to know what the boundaries are. I want to keep the law, and that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to go beyond that. And, you know, oftentimes we want to shape the word of God in the same way. We want to limit God's, call, God's claim our, on our lives through his word in the same way. We want to shape our interpretation of the law, of the word of God, to justify our prejudices And our behaviors instead of having the Word of God shape us. And so here's the real question then. This is what the parable is about. The parable is not just about, uh, it's not about do good to people on the side of the road. That's wonderful and we should do that. Go and do likewise. The parable is really about answering the lawyer's question. And here's the question this is the key Who do I have to love and who do I not have to love? Who am I supposed to love? What are the limits of that kind of neighborly love that is required of me in the Torah? Who is my neighbor? And so that's what the parable is all about. And then Jesus answers with those words we're so familiar about. He says there was a certain man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's a literal uh, sense because that parable, Road is about 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's the same road, I think the same road that is still there. I've driven that road, and it's like going through the Badlands of South Dakota. Now, I was in a tour bus, uh, I would, Let's be fancy. A pilgrimage bus. All right. We were on pilgrimage. We weren't touring the Holy Land. We were in, on pilgrimage in the Holy Land. And I, what I remember about the road going down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, first of all, you descend about 2,500 feet over that 17 miles. It is quite a descent from the, from the heights of Jerusalem down to the plain of Jericho near the Dead Sea. And what I remember is that it seemed like to me on that twisty, windy road going through those badlands that half the tires were hanging off a cliff. Most of the time it was pretty scary and so that road it was always known as being desolate It was a rugged badlands and it was a perfect location for ambushes It was a notoriously dangerous road and so this man is traveling down from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho he is beaten he's robbed he's stripped and he is left for dead And the first two guys who show up on the road who see this man are clergy Now they're part of my guild I'm going to give them as much of a break as I possibly can. They're not being intentionally bad here. They were trying to be good guys. They were keeping the letter of the law by not approaching a dead body. Because, you see, if a Jew touched a dead body, he would be ritually unclean. And so if this priest, who was the first one to pass by, probably riding on a donkey because we know... Priest usually rode on donkeys. They didn't walk from Jerusalem. They rode to, from back to Jericho. If he came to that, uh, that uh, person found that it was a dead body by inspecting it. I've said before he could at least poked it with a stick, but he wasn't thinking like that. Uh, he, if he touched that body, he would have to go all the way back to Jerusalem and go through a week of purification rituals to get back his his status of being pure and able to do his priestly duties. And the same thing is true of the Levite. He was concerned about the same thing. They were keeping the letter of the law by not approaching a dead body. And if a Jew touched the body, he would have been ritually unclean if it was dead. Also, if the man wasn't dead but was a Gentile, and since he was stripped, he didn't have any distinguishing characteristics as far as clothing goes, and he touched him, he would still be ritually unclean because he would have touched a Gentile. So these guys just weren't taking chances. Or maybe they thought it was a trap set by other robbers in order to get them to stop. Or maybe, maybe they were just in a hurry to get back home. But Jesus wasn't necessarily bashing the Jewish religious cast here. He just wants us to know that the people who passed this beaten man, the people who passed him by, were good Torah-observing Jewish folks. They were good religious people. And then Jesus tells that another man came down the road. And his hearers are probably expecting, because they're hearing this, you know, it's, it's... it's just like we have stories and they're told in threes, you know, the three bears and all that kind of stuff, you know. So we, that just tends to be a typical human trait is that in storytelling, you tend to have things in groups of threes. And so it made perfect sense to the hearers. Oh, here's the priest, very religious guy. Here's the Levite who's kind of like, you know, uh, they help the priests in the, in the temple. And so the next person obviously will be a devout Jewish layman. And that's where their expectations are. Here comes the Jewish layman, and he's going to be the example for us all here in this parable. And that's when Jesus turns the parable in a very incredible way, actually a flagrantly, flagrantly subversive way. Instead of this being a Jewish layman, Jesus said a Samaritan came by. Now, you and I can't begin to understand the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It actually started way back in the year 721 B.C. when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they led those ten northern tribes into captivity, and they were never heard from again. The only people who got left behind were the nobodies of that society in the northern kingdom. And then the Assyrians resettled foreigners. And this is actually, if you want to know, this this practice continued into the 20th century. Stalin did the same thing in in, in order to uh, reduce the nationalism of the provinces of the Soviet Union during, this is back in the 30s and 40s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, what the Soviet Union did was they, they, They took people like from Kazakhstan into exile or Uzbekistan into exile and put them somewhere else in the Soviet Union. And then they moved ethnic Russians into those areas to take over. And that way you, you took away nationalism and resistance to the empire. And that's exactly what the Syrians were do- Assyrians were doing. They wanted to remove resistance to their empire. And so they moved their o- other people from all over the Assyrian empire into the land of Samaria, which is what the northern kingdom is called, hence the Samaritans. And those people intermarried with the Jewish remnant was- who was there, the nobodies who were there, the people on the bottom of the social to- uh, totem pole who were there. And between those folks, that you- what, had ha- what happened was... You got a heretical kind of halfway Judaism formed out of that, and so, as far as the Jews were concerned, Jews living in Judea in the southern kingdom were concerned, these were half breed heretics, and they were bad guys, and there was a huge animosity between these two groups so there were so these were the the haing her, heretics, and this this long and bitter history followed after that between those two people. No Jew would even be no Jew would even let a Samaritan touch him. In fact, the lawyer at the end of this parable, you'll notice when it says, uh, who was this man? Who was the neighbor to this man? And the lawyer says, Well, I suppose the one who showed him mercy. Guess what he can't say? Samaritan. He just can't say it. Can't bring himself to say it. And yet this is the man who is moved with gut-wrenching compassion and wants and stops to help. What would be, I can't, we need to think about this. What would be analogous that we could think about to help us understand the radical character of who the neighbor is? Who are the Samaritans we have to love? And I think if we told this parable today, perhaps one of the closest analogies we could come to if we heard this story. And Jesus, uh, Jesus tells the story, you know, there's an uh, Anglican priest that uh, goes by, and a deacon goes by. And then a radical Muslim stops and helps this man. And we might begin to get the flavor of this parable. Or maybe uh, a bishop goes by and a priest goes by, but then an LGBTQ activist stops and helps this man. That's the kind of subversive character that is being of love that is being promoted. In this parable, who do I have to love? The very people I don't think I have to love. The very people I think of as my enemies. We have a lot of enemies right now in our culture, don't we? We've seen it breaking out. So much enmity. What's the point here? The point is this. Love is more than right doctrine. Love is an action. The lawyer had right doctrine. This is important to us because we tend to think Like this lawyer that salvation is about having right beliefs and right sentiments or feelings. But there's no Christian understanding of a love for God and a love of neighbor that does not have the fruit of loving actions. A life transformed by Jesus will always reveal itself in subversively loving acts, subversively loving actions. James chapter 2, verse 19, you should be familiar with this verse. James tells his readers, you believe that there's one God. You've got good doctrine. You believe that God is one. Great. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So at least your doctrine is as good as the demons. Congratulations. Or 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Listen to how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material... Well, okay, good. I'll lay down my life. What do you mean? If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. I'm glad you hashtagged love. (laughs) I'm glad you posted a loving thing on Facebook. But let us not love with words or tongue or posts on social media, but with actions and in truth. God's love does not know boundaries, and that's why you got saved. He didn't have a boundary that kept him from loving Ben Sharp, a horrible sinner. God seems to have gotten loose in the world, and he is showing up in the actions of Samaritans, he won't let us narrow the field of love. In God's kingdom, love and mercy seem to come almost always in surprising ways. And I am becoming more and more aware. My whole The last eight years of my life have actually been just one long experience of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That there are people who don't share my theology. In fact, they're just wrong about so many things. <laughs> I try to help them. But inexplicably, they seem to be much better people than I am. I just don't know how to account for this. They tend to be more, I don't know why they're so generous and so self-giving and so loving in and, and, and ways that I'm not. They should just stick to my expectations, but they refuse to do so. You know, sometimes I think we're afraid to love with that kind of reckless love. It is, it is a reckless, self-forgetful love. You know, the guy who stopped, the Samaritan who stopped to help the man? Yeah, it was robber-infested territory, and he didn't think about that. He loved this man recklessly. And I think perhaps we're afraid to love like that because we're afraid that such a love will end up consuming us. If I start loving everybody like that, there won't be time for me. There won't be any enjoyment in my life. But that's when we're wrong. It's wrong because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that radical love poured out to its fullest end. Death on a cross for God's beloved enemies ends in the joy of resurrection, which is more astonishing, powerful, life-giving love than we can ever possibly imagine, more joy than we could ever possibly imagine. So who do we have to love? Well, we have to love everybody. But wait, there's more. I love that this passage has been read from ancient times typologically because this way we're sure we can get the gospel back into the parable of the Good Samaritan. So great Christian uh, church fathers like Irenaeus or Origen or Ambrose or Augustine, they all saw something else going going in this passage. And what they saw was the gospel was happening. And they said this, this is the ancient consensus of the church, one way of reading this parable, and I think it is indeed true. You and I are the ones who fell among the thieves. The enemy of our souls, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy, as Jesus said in John 10.10. We've been left beaten, stripped of our dignity, half dead. And what the ancient teachers of the church says, we are alive in the body, but we're dead towards God. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are helpless. We cannot help ourselves in the wilderness. The priest and the Levite are like the law of Moses. They have no power to raise us to life. Now, while Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, before Christ enters our lives, the law of Moses only stands over us to condemn us as defiled and unclean. It has no power to raise us to life. It can only stand in condemnation. But then Jesus comes, and in this reading, Jesus is the Samaritan. And he is like a Samaritan because it says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Just like Samaritans. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In fact, when the Jewish leadership wanted to cast the greatest possible scorn on Jesus, they said to him in John chapter 8, verse 48, uh, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The worst name they could call him was Samaritan. Who was the good Samaritan?" This this despised and rejected Jesus comes to us and has compassion on us. He is the one who binds up our wounds and heals us with the oil and wine of word and sacrament. Jesus carries us to the inn, which is the church. And he puts us under the care of the innkeeper, the Holy Spirit. And his grace is so abundant that if there is anything else we need, he provides it for us. And then he says this. I love it. This is so true. I will come back. I will come back. Beloved, that's the gospel. And it's right here in this passage. We are the man in the ditch. One commentator has said... The parable can be summarized as follows To enter the kingdom, one must get into the ditch and be served by one's mortal enemy. To enter the kingdom, one must get into the ditch and be served by one's mortal enemy. Grace comes to those who cannot resist, who have no other alternative than to accept it. The the man lying half dead, the very fact that people passed him by was because he looked dead. And he couldn't help himself. To enter the parables world, get into, to get into the ditch, is to be so low that grace is the only alternative. The point may be so simple as this. Only he who needs grace can receive grace. Brothers and sisters, we are in the end of the church. Christ has provided for all our needs. He continues to pour on oil and wine to heal and strengthen us. And he feeds us in this inn as well. He feeds us on his own presence here at his table. This morning, brothers and sisters, when we come to the Holy Communion, won't you say thank you, Jesus, that you are the good Samaritan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand with me as we, together, profess the Christian Pledge of Allegiance (laughs) in the words of the Nicene Creed.